0: Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of Matthew. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be down in verse 34. And I'll just tell you, uh, the Bible's a real book. It talks about stuff uh, in a real way. It, it it presents things without a rose-colored lens. It it tells you really wonderful things, are really wonderful, and it tells you really hard things are really hard. And today... Uh, You know, it's hard. So I want to read it, and then I want to try and understand it a little bit. I mean, I think in the context of the passage, Jesus is telling these guys to go and share about who he is. The Light Burden is our series right now. We're focused on what this part of Matthew is focused on, and it's focused on the process of believers taking what they know about Jesus and go and sharing that with other people. We call that evangelism. Evangel is just the Greek word for, for gospel, for news, for good news. We're isming, we're giving that gospel out into the world with evangelism. It's a good thing, it's an important thing. If you've ever tried to do it though, and this is what we're talking about here, ah, burden. We're saying light burden, and I'm going to make a case, but burden, difficulty. It can be um, straining, it can be uh, discouraging. And I want to just let Christ speak to you today. Here's what he says. Do not think that I, this is Jesus speaking, have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So is that our pitch? (laughs) Like, he's telling them to go and to share. And he tells them to preach the good news of the kingdom. And then he just tells them. He tells them all kinds of real stuff. So is this what they're supposed to be going to every town in Galilee and saying? He's great. Also, he's come to cut up your house. (laughs) He's come to bring a sword. You got to carry a cross, but he's great. What's the pitch there? It sounds really intense. I think my defense for it is just that it's true, but I also want to understand it more fully? How, how do we get to seeing how this is actually something deeper, this is something better, this is something more, not only real and true, but more wonderful than what the world offers? I think if you're going to preach, and, and not preach in the same way that I'm doing it up here or whatever, but if you're going to share about Jesus with other people, we talked about this in this series, you need to be very aware of what they already think. You need to be very aware of what their world is is kind of valuing. What about the gospel do you think would be objectionable to them? What about the world is really attractive to them? What about the gospel would be really attractive to them? What about what they already believe is difficult for them? I think it's something that you and I are equipped to do because let's not pretend we're in a monastery or something. You are drinking in the same influences and sources that the people you're going to speak to are drinking in. You're experiencing the same temptations. You're experiencing the same ah, difficulty with Jesus that they're experiencing. You're experiencing the same desires of the world that they're experiencing. But as we engage in kind of worldly wisdom, we're also experiencing some of the same pain points and looking back towards Christianity with some of the same desires. You have their heart. You can understand their heart. I certainly feel that way. I love uh, humor. I love any kind of just comedy. Uh, I went way too far with it for a long time, just having a really bad filter for what I would let into my mind if it was funny. Rachel and I used to say that all the time in our marriage early on. We would say something that like, we probably wouldn't say to other people, and we're like, oh, that was terrible, but it was funny. And we would laugh, and that somehow justified like the blasphemy? When you talk about joking in the Bible, and you really just get more prohibition than excitement. You get in Ephesians talking about not having crude joking. I don't know what to do with that. I, I, I do. That's what we're going to talk about. But that, that question is hard for me. When I think about worldly sort of desire, I love the idea that why not just laugh? I love the idea to just make things much less serious. To just enjoy the right now. I want to be clear about the foundations of that idea, but do you know what I'm talking about? Is there some appeal to the commercials that you watch? Is there some appeal to the shows or to the comedy that you watch that that makes you kind of want to be like those people that don't have anything above them to condemn or to limit the pleasure that they seek? I mean, we, we'll hit limitations on pleasure, right? Like there's limitations that come with drugs. There's limitations that come with food or alcohol. There's limitations that come with um, sex and that kind of stuff. There's, there's natural stuff you're going to run into. and Okay, let's pull it back a little bit. But, but is there a part of you that wishes there wasn't something above that mandated what your life looked like? If you don't, think about it from a Christian perspective. What Jesus is saying here is that he is absolute. He's Lord. He's Lord to the point that if your relationships, even your most intimate relationships, force you to choose, you have to choose him. And in that way, he becomes like a sword cutting up families that He is a Lord, but He is a Lord in a fallen world where following Him is going to have opposition to the point that you will carry a cross like He did. That's an instrument of torture and execution. I, I don't know that we want that. I think instead we want something else. I, I need you to understand the push and the pull of this. So that you can sympathize with those that you love and you want to share with. You're not judgmental towards people that have rejected the gospel. But also, so you can argue against your own heart and choose to keep following when, ah, I mean our song about a fresh fire. That, that's, the implication is that the fire is not always just there. The implication is that the fire is going out and Lord, I need a fresh one. Hit the bellows, Lord. Light a match. Let it go. I, I want to I increase in my passion. Well, where did it go? Okay, so I, I, I think one of the best statements I've run into on kind of like what, what is a uh, a clear-eyed understanding of life without the Lord, sort of the modern understanding of engage in some religion if it makes you feel good, but just realize that really, really, There's nothing there, or at least there's nothing absolute. And it comes from a comedy writer, a guy named Dan Harmon. He's an influential TV writer. (laughs) It's oxymoronic there, but influential TV writer, a guy named Dan Harmon. And he says, um, he he has sort of a, a nihilism, and he says, the knowledge that nothing matters, while accurate, gets you nowhere. The planet is dying, the sun is exploding, the universe is cooling. Nothing is going to matter. The further you pull the more, pull back, the more that truth will endure. He's saying the more you zoom out into the universe. But when you zoom in on the earth and zoom in on a family, into a human brain and a childhood and experience, you see all of these things that matter. We have this fleeting chance to participate in this illusion called, I love my girlfriend, I love my dog. How is that not better? Is there any part of you that understands that? that feels that? Some of the movies, some of the, the TV, some of the books, some of the music, some of the clips, some of the TikToks, they're preaching this. Be free. Be free to enjoy. That freedom, though, of course, is a freedom from a divine, sovereign God. A freedom from the first part of this this. Matthew chapter or verses that we're reading. There's a trade-off that's there. The trade-off is there is an immediate joy and pleasure. At least there's an immediate like uh, giving you the, the keys, you know, giving you the steering wheel to go and pursue whatever that is for you. But while there is an enjoyment there, there's a, there's a deep despair that's all around it. What Jesus is describing is a pretty difficult life, a life that has a lot of edges to it, a life that has a Lord that is, in fact, in charge, and you bounce around behind him as he goes. You have to then do as he did, which includes washing feet and putting crosses on your back. But while the immediate experience can be painful, there's a joy in and around. There's a joy above and beyond. There is a laughter that echoes through Scripture, or at least... Is pointed to by Scripture, and this is what Chesterton would respond. Now, these are 100, like you know, 75, 80 years apart, Dan Harmon and G.K. Chesterton. But this is how he would respond in a you know, out of order way because Harmon wrote much later. But here, here's how he would respond. He said, "I freely grant that the pagans, like the moderns, were only miserable about everything. They were quite jolly about everything else. Do you see the joke that he's doing there?" I can see that the Christians of the Middle Ages were only at peace about everything. They were at war about everything else. Doesn't that sound like Jesus' words? You've got to understand this. You've got to see. He says that the task of evangelism, the task of living as a Christian, is a task that involves suffering, swords, crosses, separation. It's a, it's a scary in hard place, and we're going to kind of dive into that for a second. But but he's saying that if you in, if you embrace what is true with all of the difficulty of it, you also embrace what is true with all of the joy of it. You've got to experience both of those things in a clear-eyed, legitimate way if you're going to be able to help people in the world understand what is both tragic and joyful about the worldview that they're accepting. You've got to do that for yourself for your kids, but also for the people that you love just out in the community. First, let's understand a little bit more about what he's saying. When he's saying, not peace, but a sword, he is talking about the fact that this is a war. This world is a scary world. The older you get, the more that you see that. What I'm saying is, when he says that you're going to have to pick up a cross... He's describing you having a clear-eyed engagement in the suffering of the world. Jesus doesn't pick up a cross because he sinned. He picked up a cross because he loves you and you've sinned. Your life as a believer is not filled with difficulty because you're an idiot. It is, and you, you know, we we have all kinds of things that we want to learn together and I need your wisdom to correct my life and yada yada. But what I think he's describing here is an evangelistic suffering. It is a suffering that loves other people, and so you're going to step into their suffering. You're going to pick up their suffering in order to try and bring them to the Lord. That hurts. Loving hurts. The older you get, and sort of the vanity of youth sort of slowly kind of falls off, you start seeing just how hard life can be. My brother, was we were laughing about the sort of the meme about mom texts. Where, you know, you talk to a family member, or, you know, somebody you haven't seen in maybe a minute, and as you're talking to them, you know, they're saying sweet stuff, and they're like, yeah, you remember your third grade teacher? And you're like, I love Ms. Pomeroy. She died. Oh, you know, like there, there's just this hard left turn that happens when you reconnect with somebody, because the world is full of suffering, and you don't really realize that. So they'll just say, hey, do you remember that bridesmaid at this wedding or whatever? And you're like, yeah, yeah, she was really nice. Well, she's dead now. She died. Oh, hard stuff. And it's kind of like a meme. Apparently, I tried to Google it, and I I don't know how to Google memes, but I think it's a thing that people get these texts, and it's you know from your mom or your aunt or your grandmother, or whatever. Because if you get a if you get a stage above, you get a stage of better sight, better seeing. You you see people's lives ten years, twenty years, thirty years advance, and you realize it's a world of uncertainty, a world of hospitals, a world of pain, a world of a lot of depression and anxiety, and a world of a lot of the resulting addictions and suicides and all the awful stuff that comes from depressions and anxieties that don't get addressed. The world sort of thought everything was getting better and better because technological advancements and some of the sort of globalization was bringing about... um, solutions to stuff that was really hurting humanity for a long time it seemed like everything was getting really great and then we sort of took a left turn this uh, writer named Andrew Sullivan he said um, as we have slowly and surely attained more progress we have lost something that undergirds all of it meaning cohesion and a different deeper kind of happiness than the satisfying of all of our earthly needs do you see what he did there He's describing what I'm trying to describe. That idea that the modern has of like, I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to have satisfied all of my earthly needs, but I'm going to do it in such a way, I'm going to have a premise that means that there's not something around it. There's not a capital E everything around it. There's not a meaning below it. I throw off a sort of obligation, but I also throw off a sort of cohesion and meaning, a deeper, different kind of happiness. Talking about comedy. Uh, Jay Seinfeld had an interview show where he would drive around with other comedians. And the one with Kevin Hart, they're driving around in this like Roadster. It's really, really loud. But It's very funny as they're talking. And they were talking about sort of the craziness of their lives, hitting it big, hitting it like really big, becoming like super wealthy, and then having children and watching those children grow up, like enter into a world where their parents were like super wealthy. And trying to like reconcile, you know, if Kevin Hart grows up on the streets of Philly or whatever, and then he's got all of this money, and his kids grow up with all this money, and he's looking at his kids like, they don't know anything about like, me or my life. And Seinfeld put it together really in a, a crystal clear way, I think. He said, our question was, things are bad, how do I make them good? He meant, I'm poor, my life is filled with violence. There is a lot of uncertainty in my world. How do I get to a place of security and stability and financial success? Things are bad. How do I make them good? Our kids' question, and now Seinfeld and Kevin Hart's question is, things are good. Unbelievable security, notoriety, financial success. Then why do I feel bad? Right here is great. All this early stuff is working. Why do I feel bad? Why isn't there something below or around this that, that actually capitalizes on that deeper sense of happiness? I need you to see this. You've got to understand it. What Jesus is saying is that you have to choose him, and that choosing requires a cutting. That choosing requires a lordship. That choosing is going to assure a certain level of suffering. Then why do it? Well, because while everything might be really hard, Everything is wonderful. The Christian is going to live a life with a lot of battle. The Christian's going to live a life with a lot of difficulty. But the Christian's going to live a life looking at a Lord who says, Resurrection, not just cross. That this world is fleeting. This life is like grass. And then comes capital L life. That we become a people who long for his returning. Have you ever heard somebody say Maranatha? It just means, come, Lord Jesus. It's a prayer for that returning. Do you understand why the Christian would feel both the longing, the joy, the hope of that, while at the same time experiencing a suffering that's going to just that much more make you long for the world to come? Brother and sister, while we're talking about it right here, do you see how you might feel this same way? Maybe you're not necessarily tempted by this, like, worldly kind of modern uh, philosophy. Maybe you just really are living it, and you're just saying, I'm in. But you are experiencing the fire reduction that we're singing about that says, I'm, I've got the cross part, I just don't feel like I have the joy part to go with it. I've got the everything suffering part, but I'm having a hard time finding the everything joyful part. Well, well what happens with that? observing my own heart, observing you, reading and thinking, a lot of times what happens is you get tempted to go back. I was reading this, um, this thing this week, and they were talking about this intense suffering that comes on this Christian group. And there's a group of them that stay faithful, and they just don't know what to do, and there's a group of them that really consider going back to their old gods. Lowercase g, heathen gods. Because at least then they can enjoy everything even if they give up everything. I I think you and I feel that temptation both ways. We feel that temptation to go and hide. I I really hope that you've read, if you've been around Hope Church, we talk about this book uh, fairly regularly. I think it's just the best book. It's a book called uh, Prodigal God by a guy named Tim Keller. Short, if you try to read Tim Keller stuff, it's often kind of like difficult, but this one isn't. It's just really, really helpful and clear and beautiful picture of the gospel. Well, in that book, he's describing Jesus' parable about this father, this good father, and in the parable, he represents God, and then his two sons, which represent two different ways that humanity interacts with God. One of the sons rejects the father totally, takes all the money he can get from dad, and goes out to try and live a life of, you know, just pleasure, Vegas. Then you have the other brother. The other brother obeys the father perfectly, but we find, intense irony and incredible clarity on the human condition, that this guy has also rejected the father totally. He also wants to supplant the father. He also wants to be in charge and have the stuff. His means are different than the crazy brother, but his objective is the same. Stuff, not father. Can I tell you that you and I, as we experience the difficulty of Christianity, the difficulty I'm miming carrying across here, the difficulty of carrying the suffering of Christianity, are tempted towards those two things. Your heart, and you don't even recognize it's doing it. Calvin called it an idle factory. Your heart is constantly coming up with other things it desires more than other than God. And you start to see God go from the end to a means. Go from the Father that has always been with you to the one with enough wealth to give you access to what you really want. We can't can't do that. We can't do that. When we do that, the enemy wants us to do that. He'll give you all kinds of pleasure. When we do that, though, we are trading everything for everything. We can't, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't see that. We, we have to have something better. We have to have something greater. And the only way to do that, even when you're in this despair, even when there's a grinding aspect, even when it seems so lengthy. I mean, Peter, just, he talks about, he quotes Isaiah and other parts of scripture. He talks about how we're like a grass. We're like a fog. We're there in the morning. We're burned away by mid-morning. But life doesn't feel that way to me. It feels lengthy. It feels grinding. And yet... Here is the blessing. Here is the everything. Here is the joy. Whoever receives you, receives me. This is Jesus telling the disciples that when you speak on his behalf and you are received as you're speaking, they're receiving not only the disciples, but Jesus. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. I'm not just this guy, I'm Jesus, I'm God. And those that receive me are receiving the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. (laughs) What's the joy? The joy is this description of rewards. The joy is this description of something greater, something deeper, something more actually fulfilling and fulfilling in a different way. It doesn't just make your belly full, it makes your heart full. He's describing the fact that he is with you. You have to give up everything, but what you get is him. And if you get him, you get everything. That's what he's describing. He's saying in verse 42, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now we can dig into the idea of rewarding, but I don't want this, this concept of somebody who's like around Christianity and kind of vaguely a fan of it to distract from what I think is the main idea here, which is that this is going to hurt If you're doing this right, there's going to be days when you really need a cup of cold water and you don't have means to get it. Have you thought about that? In this word picture that he's got here of somebody that is caring for a prophet or somebody who's receiving a righteous person or somebody who is giving even one of these little ones a cup of cold water in his name, in that word picture, you, if you're the one that is sent by Jesus, aren't even able to get yourself a cup of cold water. You, if you're the one being sent by Jesus in this word picture, are hurting. Why would you do that? Well, because you get him. All right, I I talked a little bit about laughter and comedy writers and comedy and some of the stuff that I've thought was cool in other times past and I want to find in Scripture. Like, I love to laugh and I want to find laughter in Scripture. Like, where is it? Have you tried? It's not easy. It's not on every page. Laughter actually is usually negative in scripture. Laughter in scripture is usually derisive laughter. We get Sarah and Abraham laughing at God when he said that Abraham or uh, that old Sarah was going to have a baby. <laughs> that's called scorn. You know, that's not what we're always after. I mean, Rachel and I are, we can be judgmental and laugh scorn laughs and like enjoy scorn laughs, but that's not what we're after. Okay, well, scorn laughs. I don't want that. There's Yahweh who laughs and scorn at those working against him in Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs at the kings of the earth as they try and burst their bonds apart. He laughs. He takes an iron scepter and he dashes them into pieces. Ooh. That's like if wrestling was serious, and they're laughing at their enemies before they go and, you know, pal drive them or whatever. He, he's laughing there. That's laughter, but that's not really what we're talking about. There's this idea that laughers now will be weepers then. Luke 6, this is sort of Luke's Sermon on the Mount. "'Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep.'" Okay. That's a good description of what we're talking about, about what will be and what is. But where's the joy here? There's one more spot where laughter happens in Scripture that I know of. There's a part of Scripture in Genesis where Isaac is in um, a foreign land. So Abraham, this is... Just to give you real brief, God creates everything, you have the fall, you have the flood, then you have God pick this one guy, Abraham, take him out of the Chaldees, the place where he was, and brought and made kind of just a wanderer. He wanders through what will be the promised, it's called the promised land, because it's not his land to have, it's his land that will be for his descendants, but he's, he's led around and kind of wandering in these different places, and he becomes God's man. He becomes the one through whom God is going to bring all of this stuff, not only the nation of Israel, not only the law, but Jesus himself. Through your family, Abraham, I will bless the whole world. We talked about that a week or two ago. Well, Abraham's son of the promise was Isaac, the one that he and Sarah were laughing at God about. It was a guy named Isaac. Isaac, as he grows up, he inherits that mantle of the promise. It's his job, or God's going to do through him, the continuing of the race of the Israelites and the promise. But again, it's a promise. it's not a reality yet. They're just still. they're kind of wandering around in hostile territory. And Isaac actually does what Abraham did at one point, a little weird. He pretended that his wife was his sister so that when they were in this hostile land, he wouldn't be killed because his wife was so hot. I'm just telling you what it says. But when he's in one of these hostile environments, the king of that place, who was told by Isaac that his wife, Rebekah, was his sister, sees them and he knows that they're married. Do you know how he knows that they're married? He, see, he sees them laughing together. They're just t- sitting together, doing whatever. They're, I'm always imagining like a household chore. They're shelling beans or something, and and they're just laughing. And they're laughing in a way that he doesn't think is scorn laughing. They're laughing in a way that is love laughing. They're laughing in a way that makes the king go, "They're married. I know he said sister, but you don't laugh like that with your sister." you see what I'm getting at? There is a love laughter that does come. You have to give up the world to get Jesus, but when you get him, you get love. You get a love that explodes, that that shakes with the jolly, joyful laughter of love. When Jesus is saying all of these things, he is saying that we are his. We are a disciple with his name on us. We are a prophet for his cause. We are being sent in his name. We are him. We are his. We're being identified with him. We're becoming sheep in his pasture. We're being adopted into his family and given his name. We're being given a ring. We're being married to him. I don't know if you understand exactly how amazing that is, but I hope that you will. I hope there are relationships in your life that are so filled with love. It doesn't have to be marriage love. That there are relationships in your life that are so filled with love that when you're around those people, you just can't stop laughing. You're just so happy that you're looking for any excuse. Anytime people laugh at Hope Church, it's not because I'm funny, it's because several reasons a you're just relieved that like something even a little bit silly was said so <laughs> you don't have to keep sitting here in seriousness like you relieve tension but also it's because there is a collective joy that we all experience as we think about these things and seeing these things as we pray about and preach on these things and read this scripture and the holy spirit brings these truths home to us what are you selling what is the pitch of christianity a dirty way to say it, but I think you understand what I mean by that. It's not suffering versus pleasure. What you're giving people is him. What he is promising is himself. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, that sounds so harsh. It sounds so singular. But do you understand now the wild pleasure of that promise? You can't get to him any other way. you got to come through Jesus. you got to come through love. So, brothers and sisters, do you love him? Take up your cross and follow him. Do you love him? Do you know his love? Have you spent time enjoying the fact that he loves you so much that he would come and die for you? That there's no way for you to earn his favor. He's never going to be impressed with you. He just loves you. And because he loves you so much, he died for you. Have you ever just sat and just drunk in that love? We've invited you to be praying that prayer. Take heart, my son. Take heart, my daughter, from our last series. Your sins are forgiven. Have you been taking heart over that? And if you're thinking to yourself, I don't know that I feel like much need to. Because you're living in this sort of weird limbo of enjoying worldly pleasures in a worldly way while trying to pretend like God is still sort of God over your life? Let me ask you not to be lukewarm. Examine yourself and just say, okay, am I enjoying kind of worldly pleasures in a worldly way and then trying to when things get too much, when I get a lot of anxiety and depression because of living that way, then I'm going to try and put Christianity back on top of it and kind of have everything and everything To you, I say, no one comes to the Father except through him. Let me encourage you. Experience this love and then share it. Understand your blindness, understand the sight that he gives, and then go tell the world, I was blind, but now I see. Come and enjoy the life that only he can give. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, there are a thousand ways we need to apply this stuff. But I think if we can see it, then we'll, we'll have your Holy Spirit lead us in application. If we can see the joy that comes from really knowing you, if we can see underneath that very compelling lie that, that I think all of us want to be true in some ways, and yet just isn't, that we would embrace the suffering that comes with following you, that we would embrace the life of holding a cross and following you even with the division that that creates, Lord. That, Father, it may look like missions in the Middle East, but it may also just look like showing up a little early to help set up or tear down. Jumping in with kids' ministry. Doing something for your neighbor across the street. Trying to have your house clean enough to have somebody over every now and again. Baby steps, Lord, maybe. But I think eternally impactful steps. If we will understand these things and bless your name in these ways. We pray that we would for your glory, Lord. In your holy name we pray. Amen.